The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff, and I'm your host for the podcast, and today I have the privilege of welcoming into the studio the Dr. Mark Ward. Mark, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Zach. Mark received his PhD in New Testament interpretation just down the road from us at Bob Jones University in 2012. He now serves the church as an academic editor at Lexham Press, a division of Faith Life, also the makers of Logos Bible Software. He is the author of multiple high school Bible textbooks, including Biblical Worldview, Creation, Fall, Redemption, and he blogs at ByFaithWeUnderstand.com. Today, we will be discussing his latest book, Authorized, The Use and Misuse of the King James Bible, published by Lexham Press. And if you go online to Amazon.com, where this book is available for purchase, you can read this quick uh, marketing tagline. The King James Version has shaped the church, our worship, and our mother tongue for over 400 years. But what should we do with it today? And that's the question that Dr. Ward seeks to answer in this book. But before we get into the book itself, I have a very pressing question for you. Ah, go ahead. How do we pronounce the name of the Bible software? Is it Logos Uh or Lagos? Wonderful question. I get this all the time. So I wrote the definitive article on it. You can go to the Lagos blog to uh, find it. Um, And the answer is we typically use both. We use Lagos with people who have studied Greek and, and are therefore familiar generally with the Erasmian pronunciation system, and therefore the O's are short, but because people who aren't familiar with it might think it's L-A-G-A-S, if we say Lagos, we typically say Logos in other circumstances. So both are correct. Either one is fine. Well, there's a good both-and answer for you all. Um, I hear both pronunciations here at the seminary, um, but now I can correct my my classmates with an air of special knowledge and say, oh no, it can be Logos or Logos, according to Faith Life, the makers of the software. Well, very good. Thank you for enlightening us on the podcast. I hope that, my that if nothing else, this podcast has been worth listening to for getting that bit yeah, of Yeah, let's just stop right here. We don't really need to go on. That That's sufficient. <laughs> All right. Well, Uh, Ignoring that bit of advice, we are going to go on and talk about your book, because I think it's a valuable resource and certainly worthy of engagement. First things first, uh, for whom is this book written? Who is your target audience here? The target audience is not the the movement called King James Onlyism, but it's never far from my mind uh, as I write in the book. The main audience is the... Uh, the group of people out there who are reading the King James Bible and maybe not aware of the alternatives. So I read a couple years back, um, Mark Knoll and the Pew Research Center did a study and found that of all the Bibles pulled down off a shelf today in America, 55% of them were King James Bibles. And I was shocked by that. I thought that's number that number is way higher than I ever would have thought. And I just can't believe that every single one of those 55% is a convinced, you know, denizen of the King James only movement. Um, So I'm aiming at the people who are not King James only, but still use the King James. Another major audience for the book are Christian loved ones of people in the King James only movement. So if you have a brother-in-law who's King James only and you don't know what to say to him, you love him, he's a precious brother in Christ, but this is a source of division and even strain or stress between you, this book will provide you some gentle, careful, gracious arguments with which to appeal to him. Why are you uniquely situated with your personal history to speak to these two audiences about this issue? I did graduate from Bob Jones University, and I have always been in circles of American Protestant Christian Baptist fundamentalism, Um, And I, particularly in high school, was in a King James-only church. The pastor—it was a large church in the D.C. area. The pastor has spoken at numerous 
um, King James only colleges over the years. And the new pastor there is uh, an adjunct professor at one of the major top biggest King James only colleges. So they were firmly in the middle of the mainstream of the King James only movement. But I didn't know that back when I was in high school. I just accepted what I was told uh, because my pastor told me. And I had, I actually really had a good experience there, a great one. I am still friends with my Christian school teachers. I had some of them read this book, and one of them I spoke to on the phone for an hour about it. He was very gracious to me. Um, so it was a love and concern for people that love me that led me into this issue. It was also a love and concern for the people that I've been teaching the Bible to over the years and people to whom I've been giving the gospel over the last 20 plus years in Christian camps and on the street and all over the place. And it was very soon after I left that uh, church to come down to Greenville, South Carolina and go to Bob Jones as a student that I began to realize with some help from my BJU professors and my pastor, Mark Minnick, who uh, was teaching through this issue, um, I began to realize how difficult it was for people to understand the King James today. And um, this, that started an odyssey for me. And I noticed that many others were not catching up in the odyssey. And uh, the, the burden grew for me to do something for them, to write in a way that was accessible to people who haven't had the opportunity to study, for example, textual criticism, which I'm sure we'll talk more about in this interview. Yes, yes. We're certainly going to touch on that. Um, but before I move on, I... I... You know, I've looked at, I've looked through your book. I've done an inspectional reading of it, and I appreciate what what you've done in it and the tone that you use. It's not polemical at all, but rather it is very gracious. Um, you can you can really read between the lines the concern you have um, for those, for lack of a better way of putting it, in your tribe, people that you love, people that with whom you're very close. And even on the dedication page, which is thoughtful in and of itself, uh, you've dedicated this book, getting granular here to Greenville, uh, South Carolina, to the neighborhood Bible class in West Greenville, South Carolina. And, And I guess that, to me, ties into your goal in reaching an audience that is, that is right now exclusively using the King James and perhaps struggling to really engage with God's Word um, because of that exclusive use of the King James. Now, something that I did not pick up on in the book is you dissuading people from using the King James writ large, right? Right, definitely. Uh, I use the King James all the time. I think it was, and in a sense is, an excellent translation um, was, I, I use that uh, past tense, because all, all of the people who spoke that version of English, Elizabethan English, every last one of them is now dead. So I don't have to say a single critical word about the King James in order to argue, as I ultimately do in the book, that it ought not be your primary or certainly your only Bible translation. It shouldn't be what you use for pulpit ministry, in my estimation, and I build an argument from 1 Corinthians 14 and other passages, which again, I'm sure we'll get into, Um, but I would never tell anybody to throw it in the trash. I certainly have not. I use it all the time. I I should mention Neighborhood Bible Class is a ministry of the church that I attended in Greenville for 18 years, and it was, um, you know, that in that part of town where our church was planted in God's providence, uh, that that's the wrong side of the tracks. Although gentrification has been pushing out that direction for quite some years, um, I used to live in that neighborhood. I moved there on purpose <clears throat> um, because I wanted to reach the folks near the church, and we had a ministry for people who felt uncomfortable in our more formal, reverent service with hour-plus-long expository messages. Uh, we had sort of a bridge service to help them feel more comfortable coming. And I was the pastor of that called Neighborhood Bible Class. And these folks were functionally illiterate. I was teaching adults who, in, as far as I know, have never read a book in their entire lives. Uh, and several of them brought the King James with them when they would initially come. And the funny stories that arose, you know, very quickly led me to say, well, you got to do something different. I, I, so I started handing them the New International Reader's Version. And that was so much easier for everybody and made it possible for me to teach the Bible rather than teaching the English of the Bible. I can sympathize with this. I, I did not grow up in a church that that read the King James really at all, and especially not exclusively. There were some folks in the pews with an old Schofield study Bibles with, uh, with the King James uh, version text. But 
in the church I grew up, um, we used the NIV, and that was fine. And then as I became a bit more uh, theologically informed, I gravitated to, toward the NASB, and that is my primary um, Bible translation that I refer to um, right off the bat. And I'm also very comfortable with the New King James, with the NIV still, with the ESV. Um, but I made the common error of starting to look down on the NIV and its various permutations, the TNIV, the NIRV, and then also other um, more dynamic equivalent uh, renderings of the Bible, like the the NLT. But, you know, I I began meeting dear saints as I was doing street evangelism and interacting with uh, more extended family members whose primary uh, Bibles of choice were the NLT. And I couldn't understand it until I realized, wow, the Bible's like the only book they read, period. And whereas I, you know, I, I read a whole lot of books. And, um, and, you know, as I was going through your book, I was just thinking through a lot of those anecdotes in my own life where I was humbled and given a good dosage of perspective that uh, there are places for translations that maybe I don't go to right away or even paraphrases that can be very helpful to people in their walk. And of course, you hope they they gain a greater appreciation for more exact uh, renderings and translations of the scriptures as well. Um, in your first chapter, Mark, you, you ask the question or you, you, you pose the prompt, what we lose as the church stops using the KJV. And can you walk us through briefly some of what you talk about in that chapter? What do we lose as the church wholesale abandons the King James Version? Obviously, for several centuries, the English-speaking Christian church, both in Britain and America, and I presume, although I do not have direct evidence, in Australia and in places like Singapore and Kenya, places we don't think of as having their own Englishes, but they do, they were using the King James too. It was, I'm going to say, near 100% or pretty much right at 100% um, uh, usage rate. So when you have a common standard like that, I do think many benefits arise. I know for myself personally, there are many passages or certainly phrases from the Bible that I've memorized, not because I ever sat down to uh, get them into my head, but simply because I was around people growing up who used the King James, and therefore every time they quoted it or mentioned it, uh, they were using the exact same wording, and it just kind of sunk in. I think that could happen with a different translation. If you grew up in a church where everybody's using the NIV or the NLT or whatever, that could happen to you. But it was more than just one church. You know, it's all the preachers that I might hear at conferences or camps I would go to or the radio. But already when I was young, you know, that was beginning to change. And if I actually did listen to radio preachers, which I did not do at that age, I was too busy playing outside in the 80s and 90s, I would have begun to hear other translations being used. But for all those centuries, you have this wording being reinforced, and intergenerational ties among Christians, I think, are just that much more strengthened by everybody using the same translation. I think that there's also kind of an implicit trust that Christians have in the Bibles in their laps when nobody has a different one. So the King James-only folks tend to exacerbate uh, uh, and try to, um, you know, make look massive this problem of the distrust and confusion created by modern translations. And I think we could overreact and say, no, they don't at all. Well, I think they do. I think people are confused sometimes. Why do we have to have multiple translations? So when we only had one, you know, we didn't have that problem. I think we also lose some of the implicit trust that non-Christians have in Scripture. And I came across a really great Christopher Hitchens quote, you know, the famous atheist who's so brilliant sounding. And he said, not to overprise consensus, but it does possess certain advantages over randomness and chaos. And he goes on to describe all the different Bible translations he sees on the shelves and thinking, even as an atheist, what he thinks is happening is people are making Bible translations to suit their own views. So he's really confused. He was actually looking at different study editions and thinking they were totally different translations. But you can, you can see how non-Christians would conclude that, and that wasn't happening back when there was only one translation everyone used. So there are genuine values, valuable things that happen to us as a Christian church that we have lost and are losing now that we have this profusion of other translations.
that's very helpful. And in the second chapter of the book, you go on and talk about some of the history of the use of the King James Version, particularly in more modern times. We're not going to get into that in this podcast. I want to jump more into some of the controversial stuff that you say, such as dead words and false friends. These are two terms, and you cover them in chapter three. Can you can you open up for our listeners what you mean by these two um, these two phrases, dead words and false friends? Everybody who reads the King James, even the most ardent uh, uh, partisans in the King James only movement, acknowledges that there are dead words in the King James, words that we know we don't know, like besom and chambering and emerald, um, but. Whatever, what they'll say to you if you say, you know, we, why do we have a Bible translation using words people don't know? Isn't that kind of odd? They'll say, aren't you, you know, aren't you diligent enough to pull out your dictionary? Um, why do you have to dumb down the Bible to, you know, your deficient knowledge of English? Why can't you just look these words up? And that makes a certain sense. Um, but I, I, although I still say, you know, why would you make a translation using words people don't know? I think that is a valid question. Nonetheless, okay, I don't want to be lazy in my Bible study. So um, how do I answer that? Well, I the, the, the really central contribution of this book is an argument that I've discovered is not unique to me. It goes back into the 19th century, people saying this, like R.C. Trench. Um, and in the mid-20th century, the um, the translators of the RSV said this. Um, Noah Webster said this way back when, um, that there are also in the King James false friends, although this terminology is, uh, uh, I'm, I'm drawing it from modern linguistics, it's like false cognates, words that meant, uh, words that we use today that meant something different in 1611. Typically, they had the same sense we have today, but they had an additional sense that we don't have. And, and I ran across this Especially, I noticed it in when I was studying First Kings 18 and the, the story of uh, Elijah on the Mount Carmel with his contest against the priests of Baal. And I was writing for uh, I was writing a Bible textbook for BJU Press um, for eighth graders, and I was checking multiple translations as I commonly do. And I ran across the ESV and this famous passage in which in the King James. Uh, uh, Elijah is quoted as saying, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, then follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. The, the ESV had, How long will you go limping between two opinions? And I thought, limp and halt, those are not the same. So I checked the Hebrew, and it very clearly said limp. So I thought, what is going on? Then I suddenly realized, oh, halt did not mean stop in 1611. It meant limp. Like Jesus in the King James heals the halt and the blind. So the King James translators did not make a mistake. They, they were simply translating the, the Hebrew Bible into an English that we don't speak anymore. And then I began to see these false friends all over the place, words that we read right past, assuming that we know what they mean, because we still use those words, not like be some chambering and emerald words we know we don't know, but these are words we don't know we don't know. That's what false friends are. Yeah, I guess you would have to extrapolate while reading that, and honestly, while reading First Kings 18, you're probably not going word by word really careful. It's narrative, so you're probably reading through and not not stopping over something like this. You're not halting over exactly. the word halt, but you'd have to you'd have to uh, deduce that halt here is somehow being used in the same way that we might use not very frequently the the adjective haltingly. Or exactly. the adverb haltingly, you know, I, I stumbled haltingly to the restroom with, you know, or whatever. Um, we don't even really use haltingly all that often anymore. But no, you'd have, it's not you'd very have to common. have a pretty sophisticated vocabulary to pick up on that. And and there, I read this chapter in whole because I found it very interesting, and and things uh, stuck out to me that that I never would have thought of. And I've read through these passages in the King James, like in Romans five eight. Here we usually say that God commendeth his love means he shows or demonstrates it, but showeth and demonstrateth were both available to the King James Version translators. Why did they choose commendeth? And you develop this argument in this chapter that makes this chapter worth the whole price of the book. I mean, there were things in here that I discovered that never occurred to me before, because though I've read vast portions of the King James Bible, if not the entire King James Version, I had not caught 
These words, which I would just gloss over and breeze past, not realizing that I didn't actually understand what the precise meaning was. Well, it's it's good to know that years of my life uh, poured into that chapter are worth five ninety nine. <laughs> Mark, one objection I hear to not just setting aside the King James, but also to the idea that we should be reading the King James in parallel to other translations, which I think is really what your big practical takeaway from your book is. One objection to that is that, listen, we don't need the other translations because the reading level of the King James actually is is much lower than the reading level of the other translations. The King James is easier to read once you get used to the these, thous, thines, and, and the eths at the end of words. Uh, but you pose this question in chapter 4, what is the reading level of the King James Version? And then you compare it to the reading level of, of other books. Can you open up for us some of the, the particular sub-questions or subtopics that you grappled with in this chapter? It's definitely true to say that you can get used to the King James. Um, You can get past the these, thous, thines, and yees, I would say, very quickly. Uh, I did it as a small child, and countless other small children over the last few centuries have done that, even though they didn't hear anybody else in their lives, their parents or friends or even grandparents, using those particular grammatical forms. Um, However, the King James-only folks go further than that, and they're sensitive to this charge that the King James is not sufficiently readable anymore. So um, they they argue back using tools like, especially the Flesh-Kincaid readability analysis, to say that the King James is actually at a fifth-grade reading level, or I've seen them say, fourth grade, eighth grade, you know, but whatever they say, it's always lower than the modern translations. And for years, I would see this and think, one of these days, I'm going to sit down and evaluate this argument. I, I, I just know they're wrong, but I don't know why they're wrong. So I finally sat down and did it, and I looked at what the Flesh-Kincaid analysis actually does. And it basically uh, assumes that Uh, if words and sentences are shorter, they're easier. Now, generally speaking, I think that's true. But what I came to realize is the Flesh-Kincaid analysis has no idea how old the words are that it's looking at or what order they're in. All it's counting is their length. And so therefore it becomes pretty well useless when applied to um, an archaic text like the King James Bible or Shakespeare in fact, you could run the Flesh-Kincaid analysis on the Swedish New Testament, as I did, and come out with a lower readability level, you know, a sixth or seventh grade or something, than the King James has. But that doesn't mean that American English speakers can read it. So I think the Flesh-Kincaid analysis is a rough-and-ready tool that's helpful for educators, you know, trying to find some way of communicating to people, you know, what what book should you give your fourth grade kid who's at a fourth grade reading level? But it really just isn't meant to be used for uh, evaluating a 400-plus-year-old Bible translation. What, what alternatives to the Flesh-Kincaid um, system of determining reading level uh, would you recommend that we take into consideration as we consider different uh, Bible translations? I don't think that readability can be measured by any computer. Anybody who tries to talk to Siri beyond asking the weather and please text my wife knows that Siri doesn't really understand human language. It's programmed to respond to certain stimuli. It doesn't understand. So don't ask a computer to tell you how readable is the NIV, the King James, the ESV, or any Bible. What The best measure of readability is readers, people. And if you are a sensitive Bible teacher who actually wants your people to understand, if you're a sensitive Bible reader and you want to understand, um, you, you just cannot help but over time recognize, you'll have these same experiences that I did, that people are misunderstanding. So one of the, one of the sharpest ladies that ever came to neighborhood Bible class, um, she came from a really rough background. But uh, unique in my experience, uh, had a, this is going to be sort of awkward, but um, she was just a very polished person. 
and um, very impressive. Her personality was very gifted. Anyway, she came in one morning and she said, um, Pastor Mark, if I have gifts, why should I wait to use them? And I said, what? She said, yeah, Romans 12. I was reading that. And it said, him that um, serveth, let him wait on his serving. Something like that. I'm going from the top of my head here. And I said, oh, I see what's going on here. She had seen that phrase, wait on, which for us always means, you know, I'm waiting on an answer from the insurance company. I'm waiting for something I don't yet have. And she thought that's what Paul was saying. If you have the gift of ministering, then wait on using it. Well, no, actually in King James English and Elizabethan English, that means give attention to it. That actually still sticks around in our language a little bit when you have a waiter who waits on tables. He's giving attention to them. Um, If you care about people understanding the Bible, you are going to have that kind of experience over and over again. And I think that that's a way of letting people be the measure of readability. Really, they're the only measure that that counts. It's the same thing as in economic analysis. When we're talking about value of property or values of cars, you could go and look up a Kelly Blue Book um, quote or go to Zillow.com to figure out how much your house might be worth. But those are always estimates. At the end of the day, value is determined by whatever people are willing to pay for it. And I think that's analogous to what you just described. Readability is determined by the actual use of people of the language and reading of it. Again, that chapter was one I read in full because I've heard that objection quite a bit, and um, I never really thought about the fact that Flesh Kincaid is a computer algorithm on steroids, and uh, it's it's rough and ready, like you said, but not particularly exhaustive or comprehensive in determining the readability of a text. Um, As we move through the book, your last three chapters deal with some very practical issues as well. Uh, You have the value of the vernacular, which we don't have to get into, but I do want to quote our confession here at the seminary, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, paragraph 8, says, because these original tongues, speaking about Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic, are not known to all the people of God who have right unto an interest in the scriptures and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them, therefore they are to be translated into the vulgar or vernacular language of every nation unto which they come, that the word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner and through patience and comfort of the scriptures, may have hope. So, if nothing else, the Westminster Confession of Faith and those who subscribe to it agree with you that the vernacular is very valuable, especially when we're talking about the scriptures. But you address in chapter 6 ten objections to reading vernacular Bible translations like the ESV, RSV, NLT, NIV, and so on. What are those objections, or what are some of the strongest ones, and how do you meet them? Um, Zach, I wonder if you wouldn't mind if I would go back into one thing in the value of of the vernacular chapter, because presumably like you, I am called to teach the Bible, and even in a book about Bible translation, I want to rest on the authority of the Bible. And I just want to make one point from Scripture about vernacular translation. I just feel like I have to say this in every interview because it's the scriptural key to my book. You know, why should we bother to have translations at all? Um, There are a number of scriptural themes there, but let me just focus on one thing. 1 Corinthians 14, if you read that passage, um, as we just did in Sunday school, actually, from my teen class this past Sunday, you cannot help but see Paul repeatedly saying, giving explicitly this principle, basically, edification requires intelligibility. That's why tongues have to be translated. And um, I've gotten a little pushback on this from uh, some King James-only readers. They say this passage only applies to tongue speaking, but I say no. Why would we ever be happy with a situation in which we're tossing unintelligible words into our worship? Um, That principle is stated so explicitly there that I believe Paul would look at the situation we've got right now with the King James and say, this isn't acceptable. We, we should not be purposefully bringing in words that we know people will not understand correctly. We need to use intelligible words in worship if our goal is, as it should be, edification. So I just wanted to get that in there. And then you asked about the objections, and I have a whole chapter full of them. Um, some of them are fun. 
Some of them are uh, more serious. The, uh, I'm, I'm actually really excited about one of them right now because the, the very first one, a lot of people ask this, you know, why are you going to dumb down the Bible? Would you translate Shakespeare? just so happens that I get to go out uh, in about two weeks and interview my favorite linguist, John McWhorter, who has taken a lot of flack out there from uh, educated people for daring to suggest that, yes, we ought to translate Shakespeare. What he actually suggests, however, is that we don't have to put it into the latest street speak. That's what people always assume when you talk about translating Shakespeare, or often when you talk about translating the Bible. They think you're not only going to dumb it down, but you're going to lower the respectability level of it. Um, But what McWhorter says is, he points to these false friends, and he says, we could get away with just a a 10% translation. Just just change the false friends. You could keep the these and thous. Um, And in fact, I personally would be willing to see that happen. If the King James only folks wanted to keep the these and thous, you know, I don't think it's ideal. um, But They're not that big of a a barrier, and they actually provide some help in distinguishing singular and plural second-person pronouns. Um, But these false friends and these dead words, they do need to be revised. Of course, I say just use the ESV, just use the NIV. But if someone really wanted to use something in the King James tradition, well, we've got the new King James version, which basically does this. The King James-only folks have not been happy with it, and that's one of the things I talk about in the book. I think that they ought to be, um, but I'm excited about that uh, particular objection. You know, why, why are you going to dumb down the Bible? Would you translate Shakespeare? Because it's something um, I'm getting to work on. I'm going to interview McWhorter for a documentary that's being shot on Authorized by Faith Life, hopefully going to come out early next year. Uh, I don't know if you got a chance to read much of that chapter or if any, there are 10 of these, and I don't know that you want me to talk about all of them. Did any others b- jump out to you? The main one that I'm I'm concerned about, Mark, is in uh, the one that I hear the most in our circles, so for the listeners to our podcast, would be your ninth objection. Um, the modern versions are based on corrupt Greek and Hebrew texts. Here at the seminary, most of our faculty, not all of them, but most, uh, would prefer the majority text tradition, though we use the ESV and the NASB and the New King James in class. I guess the New King James does do majority text, or, or at least yes. TR, Textus Receptus. Um, there are a couple faculty that are that prefer the critical text for you know, theological and philosophical reasons, but um, but a lot of our listenership uh, would be not just preferring the majority text or the ecclesiastical text, the received text, but you know the the textus receptus itself, the exact textual basis of the King James. Can you walk us through the major issues related to this objection, that the modern versions are based on corrupt Greek and Hebrew texts? In God's providence, I was just teaching on this topic at a local church for a series of bibliology lectures just last night. Um, I just wrote an article in the Bible Study magazine, uh, the most recent edition, on this uh, very topic. I, in God's providence, have been speaking and writing about it a lot. And I could go deep into the details of textual criticism, but and it is you know excessively detailed by its very nature. We're talking about detail after detail after detail. We're talking about scribal corrections from the fourth century. We're talking about different scripts that scribes would use, and that's partly how we date manuscripts. We're talking about um, geographical location of these manuscripts. Um, but when it comes down to brass tacks. <laughs> In my book, I argue that we shouldn't be, um, we should not engage the King James only folks on this issue of textual criticism. So I'm going to kind of answer this question in two ways. I'll answer the question you actually asked in a minute, but I want to start with the King James only folks. Typically, in God's good providence, I keep using that phrase because his providence is good, most people in the King James-only movement have not had the opportunity to study Greek. Now, that's absolutely true of every movement that there is. Typically, it's only pastors and maybe a smattering over the people in the church who've had the chance to study Greek. Um, that means that anybody who's going to argue with a King James-only brother or sister about textual criticism is going to be engaging in something that I think is uh, fruitless. Why? How could it possibly be that you would have a productive argument 
about texts written in a language that you don't read. I'm not saying that, you know, the layperson is not capable of having a um, careful and well-considered opinion on these issues, but I am saying that every one of his or her opinions is necessarily secondhand and more likely third or fourth or tenth hand. So what you'll actually end up arguing about if you argue textual criticism with a member of the King James Only movement is not Greek and Hebrew manuscripts. What you'll be arguing about is what which authorities are trustworthy, the ones you trust or the ones I trust. So I urge people, don't even bother with that argument because you're just going to get all confused when you think you're arguing about Greek, but you're actually arguing about should we trust D.A. Waite or James White or should we trust Peter Ruckman or Don Carson? Those, you know, those are very different arguments. Um, when it comes to folks, uh, Presbyterian folks, and there are some Reformed Baptists who are like this that I've been running into who strongly prefer the uh, Textus Receptus or the majority text, um, I listen carefully to what they say, and I observe a distinction between people who are responsible, like Maurice Robinson, and people who seems to me are irresponsible. Um, and if they're irresponsible, I won't engage them. I, it, it just doesn't ever go anywhere. Um, it, and if they, if they insist on the exclusive use of the King James Version, I won't even talk about textual criticism with them at all. Um, so to the people out there in your readership who are like Maurice Robinson, who are for responsible reasons for, you know, philosophical and theological and exegetical reasons, they, they feel strongly that the majority text, uh, Byzantine priority is the way to go. Um, I would say more power to you. The differences between the critical text that I, yes, prefer and the text you'd prefer are so minor that I just do not want to fight about it. And so what the thing I care about, the thing I think the Bible cares about more than the textual basis um, is that people read whatever text you prefer in, in English that people can actually understand. That's where I like to put the emphasis. And let me mention something else here. I, I made a site called kjvparallelbible.org, which actually shows off in English all of the differences between the Textus Receptus and the, um, and the critical text. And what I found is verse after verse after verse after verse is precisely the same in both texts, and the great majority of differences are so minor, they make no difference in meaning, typically. And when they do, as does occasionally happen, um, there's no difference in doctrine. So although it's very important, yes, we ought to have opinions on this, textual criticism is something that we ought to know about, especially if we're called to ministry, I think it—I actually respect people very much, like the GPTS professors— who, okay, they, they don't prefer the critical text methodology, but they're happy to use the ESV um, because they recognize that readability trumps these minor and significant differences between manuscripts. I just opened up the website you mentioned, kjvparallelbible.org, and right uh, off the bat from the homepage, what you'll notice is that this isn't just Dr. Ward's pet project on his own to prove a point. Uh, Right up front, there are four sponsors listed, including a TR advocate and a majority text advocate, and so you're getting what here looks like a goodwill, good faith effort to bring rapprochement and understanding to both sides of the issue and to actually instill a greater degree of confidence in in our modern translations and in the textual bases behind them. So I I would commendeth, <laughs> I commend this, this website to our listeners, kjvparallelbible.org, as a resource and, and, and just as something to peruse in your spare time, which I'm sure everybody has much of, um, especially in the middle of a semester if you're a seminary student. But that, that's very helpful. Thank you for pointing us to that resource, as well as foreshadowing the, the coming documentary on the book, which I'm sure is going to be worthwhile. I've seen you post a little bit about that on social media, and that's another Another, another resource I'm excited to, to see. Mark, I want to, at this point, leave the rest of content questions behind us and just talk about a little bit of your, your tone in the book and then also the reception that the book's received. And then I'll, of course, allow you the closing word at the end of the interview. Um, what is the tone that you're seeking to employ? We know that it's accessible and popular level. Some of the chapters 
read like very intelligent, long-form blog posts, which I appreciate for a book like this and for the audience that you're writing to. But in general, what was the tone that you were seeking to um, to pursue or to employ in writing this book? I was seeking to employ the tone that my wife urged me to use. That's good. That's wise. Uh, she read... She read a first draft, or I read it to her. This is what I commonly do. Um, she is my best counselor, and so I take my most sensitive writing to her and let her gauge it. And the first version, she did not like. I think she totally rightfully said, you're too combative. Um, and I I have at times, I acknowledge, torn my hair out <laughs> over some of uh, the... Uh, advocates of King James onlyism, and so when my wife said that, I realized I have got to seek the Lord's face about this and ask Him, plead with Him, to make me gracious. And I'll tell you, the major tool that He used to do that was uh, not actually my wife, although she helped, but the memory of the Christian school teachers that I had in high school who really were and are godly and gracious people. In my experience, I, you know, I didn't go to a church full of people like Peter Ruckman or Jack Hiles, who frankly were just sinfully caustic and even coarse, just nasty to other Christians. That just wasn't the way of the people that influenced me. I could never, I could never betray them by uh, being bitter against them and uh, treating them like that. So um, once I could get them in my mind, it was easier to be gracious because I was responding to the grace of God that was in them. That was the aim that I had. Uh, I I want to persuade. And if, if you go on the war path against people, they will not be persuaded. You have to show that you recognize the good things that they are trying to protect. And I do. I think the King James Only movement is protecting some things that I also very definitely value. You know, the level of reverence that they are urging that we ought to have in our church services. And they're saying, you know, the King James is highly reverent. Well, I like reverent services, too. Um, the, they're urging careful Bible study and using the dictionary. Well, I value those things too. So I wanted to write a book that uh, gently said to them uh, with a gracious tone, okay, I know you value also understanding what the Bible says because you taught me to work hard to understand the Bible. And, and I think that you are unknowingly um, letting some of these other good values trump what ought to be the most important value, which is understanding. And that that reaches that that creates a tone very different than, say, a public debate would create. And when we're talking about the understandability of the Bible and the readability of the Bible, we're not setting that up in opposition to uh, the faithfulness of a translation. And I think that there are very uh, readable, renderings and translations of the Bible now that are also very faithful, and especially those of us who speak English and have English as our mother tongue, we are abundantly blessed. We have dozens of solid translations that are reliable, and especially when read in parallel with each other, um, can be very beneficial without doing damage to the faithfulness of of Scripture or the authority or the sufficiency of Scripture or any of the other qualities that we so greatly value. Uh, my my last question for you, Mark, is is more out of curiosity and. Uh, it has to do with this, since I don't swim around in in circles that debate these issues uh, all all that much or all that heatedly. Uh, how how has your book been received, particularly by those who disagree with you, who think you're, you're being too kind to uh, to the King James, or that that you're that what you're doing is korban, it's totally, you know, unacceptable. You shouldn't be proposing that we read other translations next to the King James. What has been the critical reception of your book? Yeah, there are multiple groups out there with different views of the King James, and every one of them has produced a different response to my book. So the probably the most interesting responses have come from a, a Facebook group full of pastors who come from King James-only circles. 
and I was invited to join this group. I didn't, like, sneak in. I'm kind of not sure why they wanted to have me in there, but um, I purposefully chose to have a, a more debate-type interaction with some of the King James Only guys on there in two different occasions. Um, and what happened was, because by God's grace, I was gracious to the people with whom I was debating, I had probably 50 different King James Only pastors um, friend me on Facebook and start to send me messages about um, uh, subsequently reading my book. And I just got one the other day from a pastor who said that he bought 10 copies for his church staff and he's now moving from King James Onlyism to um, to the use of multiple English Bible translations. And of course, that's very gratifying. I uh, rejoiced in that and thanked the Lord for that answer to prayer. Um, so that would be, you know, the ideal response. That's what I'd like to hear. But then I also have had responses from people who do disagree. And um, among them, I will say, I, I really have heard from the nicest people. I have had very gracious, um, cordial interactions with some people who insist on the exclusive use of the King James Bible, particularly pastors. Um, I had one in Texas contact me, and um, we had a very interesting discussion. Uh, one in Hawaii contacted me and was just the nicest guy. Um, and I, I found a couple people who were actually willing to kind of go back and forth and actually listen, and that was really great. Then I have had folks who have not listened, and the saddest response to me came from two Bible college professors who teach at King James Only Bible Colleges, and I reached out to as many of those uh, gentlemen as I could, brothers in Christ, and uh, both of them did the exact same thing. They don't know each other as far as I know. They were in different parts of the country. Um, they didn't know, they, they didn't coordinate their response, but they did exactly the same thing. They each read my book and then emailed me at my request, you know, saying, okay, so what do you think about the book? And they utterly set aside everything that I said and said, let's start talking about textual criticism. I spent an entire book saying that's a totally separate issue. We can talk about that another day. Let's talk about readability of King James Elizabethan English. And they utterly refused to talk about that. One of them was very nice about it. The other one was one of the few people who was uh, not so nice to me. Um, but um, I started getting responses that I collected into a post that's up on the Lexham Press blog, how KJV-only Christians responded to authorized. Um, and I gave the top five responses. They did have some arguments about 1 Corinthians 14, for example, um, which I engage a little bit in that piece. Uh, I could go into great detail, but th that's kind of the broad outlines of the responses that I've gotten. That's helpful. It's interesting. Not altogether unpredictable. I'm glad on the whole it sounds like folks have been fair-minded and, and gracious to you. I found the book helpful. I found it useful. It immediately drew me in, especially those two chapters in the middle, dealing with questions that I've asked myself and that I've been asked and have not had a good answer to. And so I commend this book to our listenership, whether you are King James Version only or not, and, um, and keep in mind that this interview and the book, like Dr. Ward has emphatically pointed out, is not about textual bases. You may disagree with Dr. Ward on his view of, of you know, prior, um, preference for the critical text, and you may disagree with me about my preference for the majority text, but the, the case of the matter is both Dr. Ward and I fully agree with the idea that we must have a Bible in readable English, in, in vernacular English, and we also agree that the King James Version ought always to be considered, and especially for preachers. This is something that we bring up at Greenville Seminary all the time, Dr. Ward. Uh, in our preaching classes, we are told to consult multiple Bible translations, if for no other reason than the fact that our listeners will be holding in their laps different Bible translations right. in 2018. There's nothing we can do about that, even, even, if we, even if we know that every member of our church has a copy of the ESV or the NIV or the King James Version in front of him or her, there's always a chance that someone's going to walk in the doors with something else 
in hand. And so we need to take into consideration the major translations of the Bible that are in use today, and it remains the fact that the King James Version is still a major translation of the Bible in use today. And so uh, there's no sense at all that we need to abandon the King James or set it aside, but rather we should be reading it alongside of other translations so that we can uh, gain a greater understanding of the Word of God. The Westminster Divines uh, were fully behind that as well, pushing against uh, the, the the arguments of Rome that the Bible should only should remain in Latin. And today, uh, I, I would say that faithful confessional and evangelical Christians uh, would um, would, in good faith, remind our King James only brothers that. You know, that's a great translation. We ought to consider it, but we also need to be promoting readability and understandability and understanding of what the Bible teaches. Um, th- that's that's my two cents and my soapbox. Do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners before we conclude? Yeah, I've sometimes wondered over time, how could it ever have been the case that Christian people would allow the slow creation of a Vulgate you know, a predominant translation that none of the men on the street, the regular plowboys, could understand. And I think we're seeing how that could happen. Um, it is difficult to make a big change like this, to shift people who are unsettled by change from a translation they've always trusted to another one. It's going to take careful Bible teaching from well-trained pastors like those produced by GPTS. But we must not let a new Vulgate be created. It really isn't right to hand Bible memory verses to children that even the adults are not uh, understanding accurately. So um, this is worth some pressure and worth some effort. And uh, I I think we can stand on Scripture. And in, in your case, although I'm not technically a confessionalist, I have a lot of respect for the Westminster Confession and use it regularly. I've actually got um, Joel Beakey's book, um, The Harmonization Harmonization of the Reformed Confessions, on my desk right now as I speak. Um, I think you can rely on Scripture and on that to call for vernacular translations of the Bible. It's a scriptural value. Thank you so much for having me on, Zach. I really appreciate the conversation. Thank you, Dr. Ward. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.